The federal election is over. All the ballots are counted. All the results are in. All the winners are declared. And the peaceful transition of power from the former minority liberal government to the current liberal minority government will take place fairly soon as we get a cabinet appointment finished and we get a new session of parliament going in. A lot of people thought that this election was unnecessary, a waste of time, kind of pointless, because we ended up with the results that we had before the election. We got the same number of liberal seats, give or, give or take two, same number of conservative seats, give or take one, same number of NDP seats, give or take one. So why do we do this anyway? I think it was a very, very important election. I think we learned a lot, and I think it clarified a whole bunch of things for us. This is Reboot Alberta. I'm Ken Chapman, and I'll tell you why I think this is one of the most important elections we've had in quite some time. First, there were lots of people who learned lessons. The politicians learned a lot of lessons. The parties learned lessons. And there were people who learned lessons. First, let's deal with the lessons that the politicians learned. I'm going to focus on the leaders primarily, because that's where most of the attention was in the campaign. Not unusual, but significantly more in this campaign, I think, than most uh, federal campaigns. Let's look at the politicians. The first lesson I think that we should look at is, what did poor old Justin Trudeau learn? Well, first, you don't call an early election just because you think you can get a majority government because the polls are telling you this is the time to do it. Citizens were not impressed with that uh, gambit at all. In fact, it, 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 it hounded him during the entire campaign. And you can thank the leader of the Conservative Party and the leader of the New Democratic Party for that hounding. They did a magnificent job of keeping the focus on why did Trudeau call this election in the first place. Having said that, people voted. We had 62% participation. Not great, but not bad when you consider that we're in the middle of a pandemic and people are hunkered down and scared to go out in public and the consequences of that. But what Trudeau did learn, and what the Liberal Party did learn, is that you cannot rely on good graces of past good deeds, like in the pandemic, to get you through an election and to be rewarded as a result of that. So, as a result, we ended up, Trudeau is the leader again, but he's significantly weakened. He's, even though he got more seats. He's got some other strengths because he managed to make some breakthroughs in Alberta, but I don't think he made those breakthroughs. I think the individual candidates made those breakthroughs, and there'll be more about that later in this podcast. So, what did the Conservatives learn? Well, poor old leader O'Toole, he ran for that leadership, appealing and pandering to the base of the, uh, the Conservative Party of Canada, by showing his strong social conservatives and fiscal conservative uh, criteria. He really did run as the face of the base of that party. And then he campaigned in the election like an old progressive conservative moderate. And that got him in trouble. What he learned is that you, the, the, the talents it takes to get the job of leader and the talents it takes to be the leader are often very different things. He knew that he has to broaden the base, move the Conservatives closer to the centre if they're ever going to get back in power. But the Conservative base, who control that party, have no real interest in moving to the centre. And as a result, in Western Canada at least, in Alberta, they stayed home. His vote was down 14% in Alberta. They blamed Jason Kenney for that, in part, and that's true, 
but it is also in large part because of the hypocrisy of the man speaking one thing when he was trying to win the leadership and then representing the party as something that they didn't see themselves in when they were in the general election campaign. So, Mr. O'Toole learned that hard work will be respected, but disingenuousness and unauthenticity will not be respected. And then let's look at the new Democrats. Jagmeet Singh, the only leader in the three conventional parties that had a positive approval rating throughout and before the entire campaign, and a significantly positive approval rating. People like Jagmeet Singh. The NDP party used his personality as the focus of much of their campaign, we understand. They spent 25 million bucks on this campaign, and they got 24 seats, pretty expensive. And they focused on the personality of Jagmeet Singh as their winning formula. Well, you can dance on TikTok, and you can do selfies on Instagram, and you can get high ratings on those uh, platforms and social media, and you can spend a lot of money on Facebook ads, which they did all of that, but it didn't translate into more votes, and it didn't translate into more seats. In fact, they lost their single seat in Quebec, and they lost a seat in Newfoundland as well. So they're not very successful, but Jagmeet Singh is the only of the th- one of the three leaders, I think, who's future is relatively secure coming out of this election. Now, the NDP is in a unique situation that they're not unfamiliar with of being the balance of power. They had it during the the Martin days and did some pretty good things with that. They had it with Trudeau Trudeau recently and did some pretty good things with that. We'll see what they do now that they've got additional pressures and the focus is now very clear as to what the Canadian public expects. So Jagmeet Singh learns that popularity is not a pathway to power. That's his moral lesson coming out of all this. Stardom does not equal power. And what did the political parties learn out of this election? Well, I think they learned that campaigns matter. For sure, campaigns matter. And in this election, and on a macro sense, we saw that campaigns mattered a lot. But on a micro sense, in terms of individual constituencies, they mattered as well. I could only speak to the Alberta situation because that's the one I'm most familiar with. But what did the parties learn? The Liberals learned that they are not the natural governing party anymore. The Conservatives learned that unless they expand their base, they're never going to be in power again. And the New Democrats learned that all the good policies in the world and a popular popular leader is not enough to get the consent of of the population to be governed by them. Now... Not all of them are failures, but they all learned serious lessons as parties as to what this was all about. The other thing they learned is that policy does matter. Not to everybody. I mean, policy and platforms, people don't pay a heck of a lot of attention to that because the media focus on the horse race of the leadership, who's up and coming, who's down and out, and these perpetual polls that are unscientific and mostly unflattering to the pollsters because of the methodology they use. But that's the way the campaigns work. So here we are. We ran a $600 million election. We ended up with the same number of seats and the same number of parties in the same ratios we had before. But the lessons we learned is that we now have some significant clarity on policy around environment, carbon tax, energy transition, social policy like $10 daycare and seniors care and long-term care concerns that come out of the pandemic, social policy and health policy out of the pandemic 
economic policy of how do we make this transition to a low-carbon economy, get the economy back on track, and support people through it. We learned a lot about those kinds of things and that we learned fundamentally that the Canadian population does not want a majority government right now. They do not want to give absolute power to anybody in any party to have that kind of control over their lives in these uncertain times. They want coalitions, they want collaborations, they want cooperations. They, the, I think the moral coming out of this election for the parties was all of us are smarter than any of us. So any one party thinks that they have all the answers, are mistaken, and if they start talking like they have all the answers, they will be punished. That's for sure. So, what did the politicians learn in individual cases? I want to talk about four different races in, in Alberta. The NDP maintained their, their seat in Strathcona as the, as the heir apparent to, uh, to actually Rachel Notley. It's the same constituency that Rachel Notley represents provincially, and they did really well. They've got a good MP there. She worked hard. She deserved to be re-elected, and she got a significantly higher margin this time, like 11,000 seat margin in, uh, vote margin in her seat. Fantastic. Another fellow named Desjardins won in Griesbach in Edmonton. This is a relatively new constituency that was held by an arch-conservative Kerry Diot, libertarian type, not very smart in terms of politics, not very on the ball in terms of policy but very, very uh, ideological, dogmatic, uh, authoritarian. Was not, he was beat by over a thousand votes by a, by a young, hardworking, well-organized, volunteer-based, mostly NDP provincial people, but they showed up, they worked hard, and he won by over a thousand votes as well. That, that was a pretty impressive win for the NDP coming up there, and we were all glad to see it coming out of Edmonton. The other impressive win coming out of Edmonton was the return of Randy Boissonneau. Boissonneau got elected in 2015 on the wave of, uh, of Trudeau's first run and replacing Harper. People had had enough of Harper. And Trudeau looked young and dynamic, and he had the Trudeau brand, and it worked well for them, and it managed to get four seats in Alberta. Three of those seats ended up being very disappointing in terms of the behaviors and attitudes of the people in them, but... Um, when Boissonneau lost in 19 as the, and the reaction against Trudeau. This time he won independent of Trudeau. He had Christiana Freeland uh, visit his constituency in his campaign once, which helped. She's got deep Alberta roots, I mean, being born in the Peace River country and growing up here. So she helped a little bit, I'm sure, but what mostly helped him was the campaign and the strength and the character and the commitment of that candidate individually. A very experienced fellow in terms of commitment to the community, his character, and his capacity, his, his skills. So he won basically on hard work and good volunteer and good old-fashioned shoe leather is what I see. The other candidate that was interesting was the liberal who got elected in Calgary, former um, city councillor, fellow named Chahal. Here's another lesson for candidates. And um, when he won his campaign on election night, made a fatal error in party politics. Somebody senior in his campaign went on the media and said that Mr. Chahal will have the pick of any cabinet position he wants because he's elected out of Calgary, Alberta. Well, the next day, 
it was discovered that he was found making serious uh, breaches of the Election Act by taking uh, opposing campaign literature out of mailboxes and putting his own in place. He's now under police investigation. He will undoubtedly be under Elections Canada investigation. I don't know if he's going to be found guilty, but but the video evidence is pretty damning. And as a result of that, his cabinet proposal and possibilities are pretty limited now. He will get something. He will get a senior kind of activity role or maybe a parliamentary secretary. But the ethics that surrounded Trudeau uh, coming out of the Wee scandal and SNC-Lavalin and the Egg of Can stuff that still stick to Trudeau, Trudeau's not going to want to reward a candidate that is so stupid as to be found on camera Uh, breaching the Elections Act blatantly as the candidate wearing a shirt with his name on the back. So this guy is uh, maybe a very good guy, but he's made some fatal flaws and there's some lessons in this for all kinds of candidates. Don't screw around with the rules. You're going to get caught and you're going to get punished and you should have, and this man is going to suffer that. So I expect Randy Boissonneau will be the preferred Alberta Liberal representative going forward. McPherson will be the preferred NDP representative going forward. And those four people have to find a way to work together to get the Alberta message into the government from a, the government point of view and the, mi- and the minority control point of view. Those, ca- those people are going to be very important to Alberta's future, the four of them, in no particular order. But Randy, likely being the cabinet minister, will be the lead on all of that. The other things that we learned um, was that volunteers make a difference. The NDP worked really hard on the Desjardins campaign with manpower. I don't know if they put any money into it. I expect not, but lots of manpower, lots of organization, uh, lots of sophistication in terms of campaigning. There is no liberal organization in Alberta federally and very little left of of it provincially. So Randy Boissonneau had to do it all by himself. But there's, so my point is there's two ways of doing it. You could do it with a large organization and a partisan initiative behind you, or you can just run it as a claim independent with a lot of good volunteer work and good, and, and good skills and good talent and, and good use of time. But in any case, name recognition will always help. And we saw that with Boissonneau, we saw that with McPherson, and we saw that with Chahal. Now, the voters learned something citizens who voted, they showed up, notwithstanding the pandemic, they showed up using their access through mail-in ballots extensively because of the pandemic. They learned that the power of their citizenship is most powerful at the time of an election because candidates pay the most time and attention to them because they quite frankly want one thing from you, your vote. So they will pay attention and you can reach out to them and you can have an impact. And collectively, that impact will be felt significantly in terms of the future direction, destination and processes in the country. The other thing I think that we learned as voters is that with this power, we can send real serious messages and how we vote. There's, it's the results that people will look at and they will, some people who are like the statistical approach to this thing, will say, well, like I said earlier, we didn't change many seats, we didn't change the power structure, we didn't change the players. So, except in the Conservatives, we, have a, we, had, we had a new leader running there. 
but uh, he and he's not he, he got to be known through this campaign this campaign helped him a lot because he got recognized finally and he had a platform that he could work off of and the media paid attention to him because mostly of his gaffes but uh, what what they what they learned is that you really really need to pay more attention to beyond identity politics with the first past the post situation we become very tribal hyperpartisan adversarial and nasty and the, and the general population doesn't want any of that i think the message the general population went by returning a minority government with an experienced cabinet uh, base with an experienced ndp opposition and a uh, in in opposition that is going to be helping them with their with their policy uh, program and platform mandates delivery but the, and the conservatives are going to have to do some serious soul searching and they're in the process of doing that right now so what we learned as citizens is that we can have our best influence during election time but we have to be better at voting we have to know what we're voting for why we're voting and now with the pandemic there's a the issue of how you're going to vote and then the last thing you have to worry about is who you're going to vote for but what we did is i think we got really good clarity on those things that i talked about earlier we have good environmental policy now every party except for the people's party of canada we'll talk about bernier in a second had a strong ish to very strong environmental policy and everyone has a carbon tax they see finally the conservatives come around and see the carbon tax is the best way to change people's behavior and they're on board now the 10 dollar a day gate daycare was a, a catalytic social policy that captured people's imagination the fact that eight provinces had already signed on to it now we have to flesh it out and see what it means there's going to be pressure on alberta and ontario to come on board now but we'll see what happens uh after the government gets itself organized and starts figuring out what the priorities are and the economic policy is how do we get through this pandemic and then what is the there is no going to there's not going to be any post pandemic there's going to be ongoing living with covid we're going to not be in a situation where we have it running virally but we look at situations where we can control it and contain it and treat it as opposed to eliminating it that's what we look to be that means there's going to be significant changes in the workforce the skills that we need how people work what kind of businesses will survive and thrive in this situation and of course the change to the low carbon economy and the change in the nature of our energy situation are going to have huge economic impacts canadians i think want to have that conversation they want a government's going to start paying attention to those kinds of things and of course we learned a lot of coming out of the long term care and covid too coming out of ontario quebec and alberta especially Oh yeah, and don't forget BC. They had a mess of it on their hands as well. And then there's the infrastructure. We have to develop our infrastructure again. It's really gone downhill. There's going to be capital costs. All this is going to cost money, and it's going to be talked about in terms of money, but also results. I think we are on the cusp of the next kind of country. We are still going to be divided regionally. We are still going to be divided ideologically. We're still going to be divided tribally. But I think we now have to start to figuring out what's the Canadian identity. Historically, we used to ask a Canadian, what does it mean to be a Canadian? The first thing that came to our mind is while well, we're not American. Well, that has now become so apparent, but we now have the situation where we have to actually identify ourselves as a nation 
or we, or we will split and fragment uh, because of the regionalization. This election to me was very, very important because we got clarity on issues. We got to send a message on priorities on those issues. We got to chastise and humble the politicians that were aspiring to lead us. And we also got a chance to tell the parties that don't treat us with neglect and don't take us for granted. We have power and we will start to use it. In that latter point, Reboot Alberta is all about how do we become better citizens? How do we take the attitude of citizenship beyond rights in the charter and into the roles that we play and the responsibilities we have to each other? COVID is starting to show that roles that we play as citizens in front-end workers, essential workers, in healthcare, in education, in food services, in um, all the supply chains, all the people that many people we've taken for granted in the past are now seen vital to our way of life, to our security our, uh, and our resilience, quite frankly. So that is a very, very important lesson that we're going to learn out of COVID, that we're going to be about citizenship and about rebooting Alberta. Alberta is now in a, an enormous situation of change. And this election, I think, has given a foreshadowing of that change. The demographics are changing. People are leaving this province. I don't know who they are. We haven't seen the, the breakdown in terms of ages, education, and what have you, from what places they're leaving. But they are leaving. It's been going on for now over a year and a half on a quarterly basis. So Alberta is not the big magnet that we used to be. We're the deepest trouble on COVID. We have the worst government we've ever had that I know of. Maybe we're maybe governments that were just as bad, if not worse, back in our history, but I don't know that for a fact. But today we are the worst governed province in the country. And that's on us. That's our fault. So we have to step up our citizenship. And that means by being better voters. And so to close this, the federal election is over. We those who voted showed up made their decisions known, but now we have to do the same thing again with local elections, and they're even more important to us as individuals, as communities, as societies, and as a province than the federal election, because we have absolute closer control and closer contact with city, town, and rural councillors and school boards. So, if you want to be a better citizen, start by being a better voter. By being a better voter, you have to be aware of what the issues and concerns are to you as well as what's going on in society. Make sure you're really well informed on those issues that are of concern to you. Don't be misled. Don't get sucked into the disinformation. And when you're being, when you're being manipulated and lied to, call it out. Let people know about that. And then get engaged. It's a little late to get engaged in campaigns, but it's never too late to knock on doors or hand out pamphlets and to, or to just let people in your network know what you're, what you're voting for, who you're voting for, and why you're voting for those people. But the best way to get engaged right now, until the October 18th, do your research on the candidates. Find out who's out there. Find out who you, can most, who you most align with and get behind them. Find out who you are least aligned with and tell people that you oppose them. And you have to oppose the bad candidates as well as support the good ones. And then after you've done that engagement, and if you've got some of the issues that are of real concern to you, post-election, the next step in citizenship is advocacy. Is We have to pick a fight. When I say pick a fight, it's not just for the sake of the adrenaline rush or winning the fight, 
but it's the fight to to press for change. It's the fight to make things happen that we need to have happening. In the hyperpartisan, polarized political world we have today, with the conventional left versus right adversarial model, when we pick fights, it's about winning and losing, and the exercise of power. The fights I'm talking about are fights over ideas, values, concepts, and purposes. We have to get back to those things, and we have to start thinking about them much more obviously, much more overtly, and much more focused than ever before. Alberta is in going is in serious decline, and we're only going to be able to change that by figuring out who we want to be now in a post-hydrocarbon economy, and who we want to be now in a worldview that is going to be a low-carbon economy that we have to adapt to. We can do it. But it's not going to be easy. One friend of mine said the other a couple of years ago, Alberta has an exciting future, but it's going to have to design it itself. It's not going to just come like it has since we discovered oil in the 40s. It's going to have to be worked on every day in an, in every way by more people becoming better citizens, being more engaged in their political culture, taking back control, creating alternatives that we don't have now. That we need, and getting rid of stuff that is just stupid, holding us back, or even worse, making us、um, unhealthy, socially, physically, mentally, and politically. Hey, thanks for listening. Federal government is about to start a new cabinet, start about a new agenda, but more importantly, in the short term, is the municipal governments are about to elect new mayors, reeves, and councillors, and school boards. Everything now is under siege. Democracy itself is under siege. Be a better citizen by being a better voter. Thanks for listening. Hope you subscribe to this podcast. Share it with your friends. Let me know what you think. I'm at on Twitter. I'm at Ken Chapman forty six. There's a Reboot Alberta Facebook group that you can connect to, and there's also the blog at,、uh, I run every now and then at rebootalberta.com. So check us out, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for lending me your ears. Hey, it's Ken Chapman, and this is Reboot Alberta, the podcast. I am very interested to see what's going to happen on November thirtieth. That was the deadline that eight environmental groups gave to Premier Kenny to apologize and withdraw comments that he made about them in social media as a result of the Allen inquiry into anti-Albertan activities. Recall that the Allen Inquiry discovered, in their extended and expensive, and changing mandate process, that there was nothing wrong with foreign funding. It wasn't illegal. It wasn't a large comment, a large amount of their money, and they were simply exercising their legitimate rights of free speech. So the witch hunt that Premier Kenny tried to impose on these environmental groups that are undoubtedly part of his private enemies list. Proved to be totally ineffectual. Having said that, his social media comments around the Allen inquiry actually were very potentially defamatory against certain groups. So about eight of them served a notice on the premier's office and the premier about his alleged defamation. I say alleged because it's not proven yet, and the lawyer in me is often very careful to make sure that we confirm that people are still innocent until proven guilty. 
But here's the deal. To prove defamation, these groups are going to have to prove that certain elements, statements, comments by the Premier were published. Well, that's going to be pretty easy because there was lots of media coverage on it and social media coverage on it, and the evidence is going to be pretty clear. The second thing he's going to have to prove, that they're going to have to prove that it was about them, that they were the ones that were being targeted by the comments. I don't believe he ind indicated individually any, ind any group specifically, but he talked about them generally. And third, they're going to have to prove that such comments and statements damaged their reputation. The third element is going to have to be proven in a more difficult kind of manner as to what was the reputation beforehand, what was it after the comments by the Premier, and are there is the reputation diminished? Partly, I suppose, that could be proven by reduced amounts of donor support or comments and emails that they've received from people and donors that have put in question whether or not their reputation of these groups has been damaged. Those are the plaintiff's situations and what they have to prove. It's pretty normal stuff, not to be surprised with, but it's going to be very interesting to see where this goes. There's a deadline for Tuesday, November 30th for the Premier to, re to uh, apologize and withdraw his comments. If he does, that will be a first because usually Premier Kenny doubles down on these kinds of things because he likes a fight and he's going to have one on his hands, I expect, from these groups. But, of course, the courts grind very slowly through these matters. So we may not hear a lot of it for, a, for quite some time. I wouldn't be surprised if it takes up until the next election before we actually get anything coming out of this defamation action in terms of anything decisive and noteworthy. On the other side, the defense to a defamation action, it's, um, it's got three parts to it. If you... And, and the three parts are pretty obvious and pretty easy. It's um, an elementary lesson in law school. The first defense is, I didn't say it. The second defense is, if I did say it, I didn't mean it that way. And the, the third defense level is, if I said it and I meant it, it must be true and not defamatory. True on the facts. So, we will see how this thing all evolves out. But I'm more interested in the citizens' response to this and the active citizenship that these groups are taking against the premier and his abusing of, their, of his power, of his political power, using the public inquiry to harass, intimidate, and limit the activities of, allegedly limit the activities of these environmental groups as being anti-Albertan. So they're not anti-Albertan. The foreign funding is minimal, and they were simply exercising their free speech rights, according to the commissioner, in the public inquiry. So, the interesting thing to me is, is that how are these groups, as organizations, and maybe there's individuals in there as well, I don't, we don't know until we see the statement of claim, which I expect may be filed before the end of this week. I'm, re I'm recording this on no Monday, November 29th. Uh, the deadline for the Premier's response is tomorrow, and I expect they'll file the, the statement of claim sometime this week, which will be a news story for a day or two. But it revives the whole issue around the Allen Inquiry, and it puts more focus 
on the Premier's cons uh, concern over the Premier's uh, conduct as the leader of the UCP. What impact will this have on that leadership review and the constituencies that have asked for, a con for the question of whether or not there should be a review to be asked before March 1st, not the in the end of the first week in April? It'll also be an issue, I expect, in the by-election in Fort McMurray with Buffalo that has to be called before February 15th. There's lots of politics around this, and it will be used as a weapon. It'll be weaponized by, um, the, by undoubtedly by Brian Jean come in the by-election, perhaps by other candidates, but it'll also be concerned by the rank-and-file membership as to his, not so much that he was taking after these environmental groups, but he was so unsuccessful and inept at it. And the issue of using the public inquiry as a political tool, as opposed to an evidentiary tool, is something that should be concerning of us in a, in a much broader basis as citizens. But here's the deal that I'm really curious about. These groups, these environmental groups, have legal status. They have all the rights of citizenship that we have as individuals. I don't think that's the way it should be, but that's the way it is. So let's not argue about what should be. Let's talk about what is. They are taking on the premier through the courts, through the courts to exercise their rights and their freedoms and taking the responsibility to make sure that on behalf of many of the rest of us who may be on some kind of an enemies list with the premier, who knows? We know that Harper had one, and he was very much aligned with Harper, so I wouldn't be surprised that he's got another enemies list, including many people in his own party, maybe now in his own caucus, notwithstanding the rest of us in the great unwashed general citizenry. But the act of taking the premier to court on a defamation action is owning that citizenship, taking the power of that citizenship and exercising it. I'm not suggesting for a minute that we all should go and start suing the premier and taking him to court. But when power is corrupt and the political process doesn't solve the problem, the default position is to go to the courts. And so far our courts are still independent and still um, judicious and still careful about what they take on and what they do. They don't have any choice. Not, that's not a claim. You will have a right to go to court. You will have that, that opportunity. It's not like a criminal action where prosecutors get to decide whether or not there's a reasonable cause of action and a reasonable likelihood of success. This is a civil action. The result will be damages, money, that will be paid out if it's a successful action. So let's go back into a little bit of history. A similar thing happened way back in the day when Stockwell Day wrote a letter that got published to a citizen alleging that a, the citizen was a school trustee and a lawyer. And I think that trustee was, I know that trustee was representing somebody that was accused of uh, inappropriate sexual activity with a minor. I believe that was the case. In any event, Stockwell Day as, as a minister of the crown, wrote a letter in his ministerial letterhead, and it got published, accusing this citizen, a school trustee, and a lawyer, 
that if you were prepared to defend a pedophile, you must be uh, agreeing that pedophile, pedophilia is okay. That, again, caused a defamation action, this time against Stockwell Day. The government of Alberta has insurance for MLAs and caucus members and um, cabinet ministers as well against uh, frivolous and vexatious actions against them on the basis of defamation. And they should have. There's an awful lot of people out there that would love to take on the power that be through defamation actions. That's what's happening with right now with Premier Kenny. In this situation, the action was against Stockwell Day. And it went on for a long time. And finally, the, the lawyer who was representing Stockwell Day withdrew from the file for reasons that I know of, but I know of them in the sense that it's confidential. Not in solicitor-client privilege basis, but confidential conversations that I would not reveal because I was still a practicing lawyer at the same time all this happened. The matter settled very quickly after the lawyer for Mr. Day withdrew from the file. Then what happened was Premier Klein said, we have to look at our risk management arrangements around these insurance policies. What happened was Mr. Day was using that insurance policy as a sword against that individual citizen, not as a shield to protect himself against actions by the citizen. He was the one that was active in perpetrating the defamation. Same thing here with Premier Kenny. While we did a review, I got to do that review, actually, under my old company, Cambridge Strategies, and, and we did a very thorough review. We looked around the Commonwealth for similar situations that were in, what insurance and protections there were there for MLAs and how they were being used. And MLAs and other elected officials, obviously, did call different things in different jurisdictions. But we did a thorough review and submitted our report. Well, the provincial government of the day was not happy with our findings. Not happy at all. And I won't tell you what they are, but they're public. And I haven't reviewed them for the purpose of this podcast, so I don't want to be specific about them. And it was quite a long time ago. The interesting thing is that report was tabled, was not was shelved. It wasn't tabled, it was shelved for the longest time. Of course, the media wanted to see it. The opposition wanted to see it. But the law is, when you submit a report like this that has been commissioned by the government, it is the property of the government. You can't do anything more with it or about it or to it because it belongs to the government. They would not, the cabinet would not allow this report that we did to be made public for the longest time. Then there was a cabinet shuffle. A new minister of justice came in and they phoned me up and said, we'd like to get this report released. It's been sitting around for a long time and it's kind of an embarrassment. And I said, yes, it is. Why don't you just release it? So they wanted to do some political machinations around it to get the report released. I was interested in getting the report released and I'm not going to make this long story long. I'm just going to say eventually it was released uh, and was a one-day story. But the fact that it was held in abeyance, shelved for so long, is a very worrisome thing. The 
good news about that is, is the Allen inquiry was not shelved. It was delayed for another three months. It was delayed and delayed and delayed. But it was delayed for 90 days for the minister of the day to deal with it before they made it public. And they made it public like a week before the deadline. Uh, and they didn't do it in the take the garbage out Friday afternoon kinds of things. They did it during the day, during the week, and a full release on the report. But the response to it was that this was an abusive process. This public inquiry should not have been used in the way it was for political purposes. And there was comments made as a result of that by the Premier that the groups that were being investigated, at least some of them, are now saying what was said was defamatory to them and, and damaged their reputation. So, my whole point in saying this is that there's power in citizenship if you own that power and use it appropriately. We've seen people writing letters. We've seen people write, organizing demonstrations, carrying signs, and chalking sidewalks and all kinds of things, all of which is just really good stuff. But it's not nearly as effective as taking the crown to court. And in this case, they're not taking the crown to court. They're taking the premier in his personal capacity to court over this defamation. It will be interesting to see what happens, who pays for the, the uh, lawsuit, if there is one, and I'm pretty sure there's going to be one. Who's going to pay for it from the, from the premier's point of view? Is this going to be personal? No, it won't be. It'll be covered by the government. But my guess is he'll have an independent outside lawyer, not government lawyers, dealing with this. The same thing that Stockwell Day had. And the in the Stockwell Day situation, they settled for like three quarters of a million dollars. When in the first, if they had apologized in the first instance, it had been about a $10,000 defamation action and damages. But they dragged it on and dragged it on, and it was very costly and very embarrassing for the government at the end of the day. So now we have, I think, a similar situation happening with the Premier. We'll know by the end of the week, but my whole point in this is that you do have power as a citizen if you use it and you choose to use it judiciously and legislatively and litig through litigation. Lots of options. None of, them, none of them are entirely, totally satisfactory. But don't be afraid to use your power of a citizen to make sure that you are defending situations if you're accused of situations and advocating for situations if it's necessary. So that's it. We're going to have an interesting week to see what happens with this defamation action against our premier, to see what happens in the media response to it, to see what happens in the UCP party response to it, and to see how general citizens take this up as an opportunity to learn some lessons about how to use the power of their citizenship. So that's it for now. This is Reboot Alberta, the podcast. Thanks for listening. Share it with your friends. And if you're interested in joining Reboot Alberta, there's a Facebook group, which make sure you answer all the qualifying questions, and we, we insist on having an email address. We are trying to form a community here, not just curating information and sharing um, anxieties and fears and anger like so many sites do. So that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.